Hello and welcome to HFMA Talk. My name is Debbie Patterson. I'm the Policy and Technical Manager here at the HFMA. In this episode, I'm talking to Ian Ratcliffe, who is the Deputy Director of Sector Accounting and Consolidation at NHS England and NHS Improvement. We'll be talking about the issues that we think uh, might be important over the next few weeks and months as NHS bodies prepare their 2021 annual report and accounts. So thank you, Ian, for um, agreeing to do this podcast with us. Um, Start off with a nice general question. Um, It's been a bit of a year. So what's it been like for financial reporting team in uh, NHS England and in NHS Improvement? Hmm. Uh, it's been hard, yeah, like it has for obviously for many people. Um, the workload has been unrelentingly intense uh, with a 1920 year end that went on forever, leading to national accounts being laid in January, plus all the regular year end 2021 stuff that would usually start in the previous September. Then, of course, all the additional challenges and accounting caused by COVID and processes to put in place for the COVID response. So it's been tough. Um, plus the isolation of being at home, of course, we've been banished from the office. Uh, there is a process we can follow if you have to go in the office, but that's multi-stage and explaining that would take longer than explaining IFRS 16, so I won't go into that. But yes, yeah, so, so essentially banished from the office, which makes it extra tough. But yeah, it's been tough, but it has, it has been for everyone. Um, on that, actually, Debbie, I was thinking before we started, really interested that what that means for you, because you've worked from home for quite a long time, so... Have you found over the last year that other people have been you know, more accessible because there's more people at home? Have you found it? Um, yeah, I've worked from home for 25 years now, which is a very long time. Um, and yes, it, it has been, um, it's been good in many ways. Um, the fact that NHS, the NHS rolled out teams has been wonderful because we can talk to people Absolutely. more easily. Yeah. We found committee attendance has gone up a lot. And people are happy to talk to me. Um, But I think like everyone else, I found that I miss going out and seeing people because although I've worked from home for a long, long time, I used to go to London a lot for committee meetings. And I miss that. I miss seeing people in the real life. Um, So um, I thought I, I wouldn't be affected. And actually, I've been personally, I've been much more affected than I thought. But from a work perspective, it's been good. Everyone's on this in the same boat. Yes, that makes sense. We take teams and stuff for granted now, don't we? But actually, yeah. it has been a godsend, it really has. Absolutely, yes. And um, we were pleased that uh, the NHS went with teams because that's what we've been using in HFMA for a long time. So for once, our technology works together. <laughs> right, so moving on to um, NHS accounting issues and the year end, um, which is coming up fast next weekend. Um, what are the three things that you wish NHS bodies would do either properly or do differently when preparing and submitting the year-end accounts? <laughs> Nothing really in that sense, actually. I have to say, we, I and we have huge respect for the challenges that NHS finance teams have to balance. And I expect my team to be mindful every day of every little thing that we might do that might add to that burden. And actually, everyone almost without exception, he's you know, doing their very best and he's really helpful and does you know, plays their part in what we need to do. So no, I certainly don't have a list of things that I, I wish people uh, could do uh, could do differently. 
my concern, well, the, the thing that bothers us is when we feel that we aren't good enough to help the service, actually, in that uh, my provider accounts team is a very, very small team. And we do sometimes feel that we can't meet everyone's expectations as, as highly as we would like. So I guess the only thing I would thought would think then uh, for people doing differently is probably remembering that there's 220, I never quite know how many trusts there are, but you know, someone does 220 odd, um, and there's lots of trusts. So we really value people's correspondence and emails, actually. People raise questions that we haven't thought of, or actually things that apply to lots of people, and they help us develop guidance. But sometimes people send an email just because it's easier for them to send an email than, you know, open the gam and read it. And perhaps just those cases, please think that if 220 trusts did the same, then we would never be able to solve all the other problems because we'd be telling you what an asset is. Um, but yeah, that's around the fridges. So really, we encourage people's correspondence and we really value everyone's input. But no, I certainly don't have a list of things that we risk, things people would do differently. We're, we're really grateful for uh, everything everyone does. And yeah, try to make it feel like we're all in this together. Absolutely. Well, I think, I mean, from my perspective, I think you do. When you say you're a very small team, so the, for the provider accounts, how small is very small in terms of numbers of people? On the provider account side, there's four people. But of course, those are people who are also you know, developing the tax forms and the FTR and the consolidated accounts. So you know, n- n- there is no one just sitting there manning the provider accounts mailbox uh, <laughs> all day, I'm afraid. I, I wish there were. And I know that it's not really your your um, area but on the commissioning side just to, for balance how many are there in that team the teams are structured differently actually in a way that i don't think uh anyone on this podcast would find very interesting um remember of course and it is really interesting like, well we find it interesting remember that you know obviously in nhse you have a really big parent in that you have the NHSE entity that's spending billions of pounds in itself so actually their group accounts is all the things you need to do to manage CCGs and help CCGs to deliver what you need, but also a, a multi-billion pound parent. So, you know, when you think of it in that sense, obviously the provider is very different. So the teams were were structured differently. And um, when we've come together as NHSEI, so there's a lot more crossover, um, but actually in some of the sub-teams, you still have that difference actually. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? And certainly when you look at the consolidated provider accounts and then the NHS England accounts, it's very clear that, that they're, they're quite different. You know, it's, it's the sum of the providers, but then it's, it's a massive group consolidation for the NHS England accounts. I may be one of the only people that opens those accounts on a fairly regular basis. And and that's certainly the argument I use when trying to tell the NAO why I don't want to do a full annual report for the consolidated provider accounts. Because you know, you've got really, you're not talking about an entity in the way that someone would in preparing a, a, a proper annual report. Right. Anyway, moving on from us getting geeky about um, consolidations. Um I know that going concern was a big issue last year and it has been for quite a while and the focus has possibly not been in the right place Um, but I understand there are some changes afoot in the next couple of weeks hopefully. Um, Can you tell me a bit about them? Yes so I know that for trusts going concern has been a bit of a frustration in particular the work that their auditors have to do. I'm the first to hold auditors to account as it were but in this area it's not the auditor's fault where uh, but it's something that we've been looking at recently particularly with the support of the NAO so yeah there's two things here really the 
auditing standards have always placed requirements on auditors to look at management assessment of going concern and then whether there are uncertainties. And the, a few years ago, the auditors, based on financial performance in NFR and NHS bodies, were identifying uncertainties that, need, that they needed to report. And that was causing auditors difficulty because trusts and CCGs didn't have the same equivalent disclosures themselves. So we updated the, the reporting manuals to require those uncertainties to be disclosed, um, essentially to be consistent with what the auditors were having to do. Over the last few months, the, the NAO, working with the other UK national audit bodies and the FRC, have republished something called Practice Note 10, which is one of those odd things that no one ever really talks about, but it's actually really important. It sets the framework for how auditors in the public sector do their work and how they apply the auditing standards. So it's kind of equivalent to what the FREM does for us as preparers of accounts. So that practice note 10 has been revised over the past few months to really focus auditors on purely looking at the continuity of services in the public sector. Remember, we've got that definition in the frame that says going concern is just about the continued provision of services in the public sector. Therefore, saying that that is all auditors need to focus on. So we're also report, we're going to revise the reporting manuals. Um, today is Friday the 26th, so next week, we hope, we're going to update the GAM and the FT arm to more clearly explain to bodies what they need to do about going concern. So while management will still need to do an assessment, we'll give very clear guidance that that assessment should solely be based on the continued provision of services in the public sector. Plus, of course, extra guidance, what that means if your organisational form is, is demising. What this means is that for going concern purposes, at least, Auditors should no longer need to ask for cash flow forecasts for going concern purposes. And then the, it'll be very rare for an organisation to have material uncertainties. And the audit work of a going concern should be massively reduced. The one thing we're going to say at the same time, though, of course, the important work that auditors do on value for money and financial resilience is still there. And actually, we've all, I think, in recent years, probably mixed together the going concern and the VFM work in a way that's actually unhelpful, given that very specific going concern definition in the public sector. So cash flow forecasts, financial resilience, that's still super, super important, obviously. But that's VFM work will be very clear on the specific focus of going concern, which should hopefully simplify things for people a bit. Yeah, it sounds like it. I think I think you're right. The going concern and financial sustainability sort of got muddled up together, didn't they? And and, and if we can separate them, then we might get some really good um, disclosures around financial sustainability in the annual report and discussions around the risks on that. We had a, a conversation at FRAB yesterday, actually, about that. Uh, of course, the FRAB minutes are very good, but the meetings are five hours. Um, so that's that's fun by teams, so these are hard work. And of course, the other minutes are never going to show all that conversation. And actually, we had a, a conversation about exactly that point with um, a private sector auditor challenged us on that to say, well, of course, you if you were looking at a private company, you of course, you wouldn't disentangle going concern and financial sustainability. It's all the same thing. But actually that definition of going concern in the public sector in the FREM does mean that it's the right to look at that differently. So we had an interesting conversation on that.
Well, interesting to me, at least. <laughs> interesting to me too, but I think we'd probably both agree that we are both geeks when it comes to this <laughs> sort of thing. But hopefully that, like you said, that would make life easier in terms of the going concern assessments and the work that auditors need to do on that. But with the message that auditors are still going to be interested in in financial sustainability, of course they are, but in, in terms of value yeah. for money. So again, we might find that there's more information in the auditor's annual report that's a new thing for this year than just the, the couple of lines in the audit report previously. Yes, I think that's right. And certainly what the MAO intend is for the auditor's annual report to actually have valuable commentary. And and I think that's right, you know, that there could be a valuable commentary on financial sustainability in a way that uncertainty, ongoing concern was never helpful language in the public sector in that we all know that these entities are are going concerns. So hopefully the NAO's ambition will be achieved because we're certainly supportive of that. Fingers crossed, eh? Thinking of audit reports, last year for the first time that I've known, um, we had qualified audit reports in the NHS. Um, Now normally that would be sort of a cause for immense wringing of hands and slapping of wrists and all sorts of dire things happening. Whereas actually, um, it happened last year, NHS England and NHS Improvement were pretty chilled about it. Um, You mean inventory, of course. Inventory, yes. So because um, auditors couldn't go and attend stock takes, they had uncertainties around um, stock takes and they couldn't do what the auditing standards required them to do to sign off the audit report. Um, If that happens again this year, are you going to be equally chilled about it? (laughs) Yes. Well, last year end was such a challenge, wasn't it? Given where we were with the pandemic and the timing of those restrictions that came in at the end of March, the restrictions that have then applied to everybody and every company and every audit, probably true that in the NHS, we were one of the biggest sectors to experience that first. So slightly on the back foot. And actually the ICAW and the FRC did quite quickly get guidance out to auditors, but it was developing, you know, no one had properly worked through a pandemic response for auditors before. So for where we ended up last year with those, you know, 29 or so trusts with that qualified opinion, we of course recognise that an audit report that says the word qualified opinion at the top is obviously is a huge deal and is... I think distressing probably is the word, actually, certainly for some non-execs, because that doesn't look great, does it? So we tried to put guidance out to explain our perspective on that. Um, you used the word chilled. Um, I think recognising that actually, given where we were with the pandemic, if and the fact that we all achieved the accounts last year that all the energy bodies did in those circumstances, if the worst fit is a, is a technicality about attending stock counts, then actually that's a pretty good outcome. So we recognise that. More so the fact that, as often in cases, NHSEI response, you have to think about what would you have expected an organisation to do differently or what do you expect them to change going forward? But in that scenario, there's nothing an organisation could have done. So yes, we quite quickly wanted to put something out to hopefully relax that situation a little bit and explain to particularly non-executives why, why we weren't concerned. Where will we get to... This year, well, similarly, if it is just about pandemic restrictions, then of course we, we will be 
similarly understanding you know no one should be fearing that that's going to suddenly cause them a problem from our perspective actually this year is slightly trickier as to where we'll, we'll end up and it is today's what the 26th of march and actually i still don't fully know where we're going to end up with inventory we've been talking to the audit firms over the last few months about this and of course in the intervening year guidance from icw and others has been padded out and filled out and what auditors need to do and it will vary hugely actually about obviously whether stocks material or not but whether individual sites are material what are the controls um, have there been stock counts at different points in time it's something that auditors and trusts have been thinking through a lot more actually and the right answer and where we'll get to really will vary by trust so I actually genuinely don't have a sense of what that number of qualifications might be this year. I'm fairly sure it probably won't be zero, but there's still stuff to be worked through, actually, in what those controls and experiences and on the 31st of March will be. You know, For example, auditors have said to us that there might be some scenarios where it's perfectly safe and okay for their auditors to attend a stock count on the 31st of March and other cases where it won't be. And that might literally depend on where the stock is. So there's so many variables here. So as long as organisations have done the right thing and primarily have thought about how are they themselves getting comfort and assurance on their stock balances? That's the thing that organizations need to focus on. You know, we still need to maintain financial control and organizations need to be satisfied with their own controls and processes. If the auditors then have a problem that's purely because of a technicality in auditing standards and the pandemic response, clearly that's not going to be a problem from our perspective. Fair enough. So um, no hiding behind the pandemic to uh, to sort of hide your poor stock control. But um, if it's genuinely you can't because it's all stuck in an ICU somewhere and you really don't want any auditors wandering around there, that's fine or as fine as it can be. Thinking of access to sites, the other big thing that, that uh, has been discussed at various meetings I've been at is um, valuers and uh, site valuations. Hmm. Do you think that's going to be an issue this year where um, valuers can't obviously wander around sites and get the tape measures out and measure bits of site? Detailed appraisal of, of what valuers do. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, th- this question has, you know, there's a rough science in terms of the volume of questions in provider accounts. And this question has quietened down a bit, actually, as a topic. So, yes. Over the last few weeks, people have raised exactly that question. We would do a full valuation this year and the valuer can't come out because of restrictions. What does that mean? And we went back to quite a few trusts and had them think about what actually is their accounting policy in that we have a, you know, the GAM recommends quinquennial valuations, full valuations with interim valuations between those five years. But that's a recommendation for how you might implement an accounting policy of holding things at valuation. The accounting policy, and neither does the provider example policies that we put out, the policy does not say we get a valuation every five years. If that becomes six rather than five, you're not failing to follow your accounting policy. So instead, it needs a little bit more thinking about what are you doing and what are you potentially missing out on. So 
compared to a desktop or interim valuation. Of course, a full valuation means the valuer comes out on site and is doing their own view of the condition. They might you know, get their own trundle wheel out um, and, and measure the inputs, for example. Of course, Trust will, be, will remember that over the last few years, auditors focus on inputs associated with the work of specialists and experts has massively increased. So commonly, auditors will look at the processes to measure the floor area, for example, and the information that's been given to valuers. So even in an interim situation, auditors might well have had some own assurance over the inputs in terms of floor area, for example. So valuations are very complex and there's lots of bits to it, but you know, measuring the floor area is one key bit, but there's an example of something that actually there not being a full valuation isn't necessarily a problem because there might well have been other assurance in the meantime. Condition surveys, are there, are, there, are there ways around that, for example? So I guess what we're saying is valuers not having come on site is not necessarily a problem. It's one of those where we, that's the reason why, you know, we haven't written definitive guidance from me, from us, is because the right answer will differ hugely on individual trusts. So there are some cases where the value not coming out might not be a problem, actually, because there's been interim valuations in the meantime, there's been other sources of assurance. Um, there might be other cases where that does become more of a problem and the auditors feel like they've got a gap. It's actually something that I think individual trust and auditors are going to have to work together in the coming weeks and to see if there is any gap in the assurance. Fair enough. I think um, given the, the, the value of PPE, the, the PPE that you and I know rather than the, the one that everyone else in the world knows now. Yes, that, that, that the, 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 the initials PPE has become a right problem, hasn't it? The, yes, yes, absolutely. Um, but, you know, that is, I think it's always going to be an issue, isn't it? Um, just because of the, the, the sheer size of the number in the, on the balance sheet compared to everything else. So. Yeah. Um, right. Thinking about materiality, there are things um, because it's been such a different year, the funding regime has been so different. There are things that uh, might become material at the year end that have never been material or judgments that people are going to have to make that are different um, or things that become more important. Are there any areas that you think NHS bodies need to think about that normally they would just sort of think, oh, it's not material, I'm not going to worry about that? Yeah, some things have, have become more straightforward, of course. With the pandemic response, we yeah. revised the financial transacting regime to try and simplify transactions and take a lot of invoices out. The move to block contracts and system envelope block arrangements, of course, simplifies income judgments quite a lot. And we're about to uh, update the accounting policies for income and the provider income policy has got a lot more straightforward this year. So actually some judgments become more straightforward and actually entities need to think about that that, uh, in terms of disclosures of judgments and estimates. The one area so as go back to your question of things that might become more material yes it's that point on inventory so we've just touched on the stock count side of things there is of course the dh sensitive personal protective equipment perhaps we might come to that in a minute the the holdings of that and other stuff means that inventory holdings for trusts have increased and therefore i'm sure there will be some trusts for whom inventory was previously just immaterial and is now material. So we've been flagging that to organisations for a few months now. And auditors have had that on their radar as well. So are in a good position to support trusts for that. 
But of course, as you'll know, when inventory becomes material, that kicks into a few other things in terms of orders and expectations and stuff. So that's the one area that we've been encouraging people to be mindful of going into this year end. This year, um, unlike any other, people are going to put um, items of stock on their balance sheet that um, the numbers are coming from the department. So what do they need to do um, if they want to query those numbers that they've been provided with? Yeah, it's a, it's a fair question. So this is such a, of all the things that I've done this job, the working all of this out has been the most complicated thing we've ever had to do in a way that actually, though, trying to make it still stand simple to implement and avoid lots of problems for trusts. So what we're saying is that for all of the personal protective equipment, which I would just use that acronym PPE um, rather than the other PPE, for all the PPE that trusts receive free of charge from the department, we did spend a lot of time looking at say, actually, can we just exclude that from providers' books? And we assessed that the conceptual see we've essentially spared trusts from the accounting definition thinking that they don't trusts are busy they don't want to know that when you look at the conceptual framework it has a section uh, paragraph 680 i think if you if you're interested that talks about transactions that aren't on market terms and what you should do in terms of a deemed cost for transactions where you've you've obtained an asset or a benefit that wasn't at a market price and what impact does that have and questions you should ask yourselves you then think about what IS2 is trying to get at in terms of items used in the production process, which is obviously a terrible phrase when we're talking about treating patients. But you know, if you think about the purpose of provider financial statements and you put that together with a contextual framework, you get to a point where actually these items of PPE have been used in the treatment of patients and they are for, therefore part of providers' books. So that being said, how do we make that as straightforward as possible? So in our guidance the bit that is really important for people to remember there is a distinction between a the value of things that you've received from the department and obviously that needs to eliminate out at our national level in the departmental overall position versus b and secondly the valuation of things that you're holding at the 31st of march in your books so they are different and actually have different implications. So on the second of those, it's really important that providers do what they normally do in terms of counting stock. And that's why we're giving market value information for the net realizable value to make sure that those values aren't overstated in terms of their valuation. So we'll we'll tell you the prices to apply um, to the year end stock holdings and we'll largely let trusts get on with that, to be honest. Back to that first one. So yes, the department has information on the notional prices. Um, well, not notional, the actual prices the department paid, the prices to be used in this, and then the quantities received. So let's be clear, the impact of this is essentially to gross up to notional entries in accounts that the value of inventories consumed the other side of that is inventories utilised, neither of which are scoring to that adjusted financial performance in terms of how providers are held to account. So we are talking about two notional entries. Now, clearly, though, they've still got to be right. So the reason that the department has gone through this process, you remember that we 
issued out all of the data up to month nine and then again up to month 11. So there's already been two bytes of this in, in draft illustrative form so that trust could get in touch with DH if they wanted to query those listings for the quantities received. So trusts have had that opportunity to get in touch with the department um, just in case some records were, you know, so-and-so trust actually was delivered to a different trust. So there's been a couple of cases where that's happened. Um, we've improved records at, at the department level. But by this stage, really, people should be recognising the quantities that they've had from the department. So following that process and some of the information that's been revised, trusts really should now be in a position where they recognise the department's numbers. Slightly different in London, uh, there has been a process because the London arrangements were slightly complicated in terms of it being delivered to hubs, so their data is being reanalyzed. so there's an extra step for London trusts. But otherwise, trusts should recognise the, the quantities. Of course, the question will be what will auditors do? So what we've said is Trusts will have their own information and records for the quantities they've received. The department's got their records. In some cases, they will agree to the individual apron and be precise. In, in some cases, I'm sure they won't. So we're saying that the department's records are pretty good, actually. So you can just use the department's records. Clearly, auditors will look over the controls over this. So if you as a trust have got very different records for the quantities that you think you received to what department saying by now people really should have already raised that with the department because they need to be able to justify their position to auditors and frankly work out which one is the right one um i suspect it's probably the department's records because obviously in the heat of that first wave of the pandemic it was incredibly difficult um, in terms of the distribution and allocation of, of these items and trusts were doing their, their very best but yeah those those doors are open for those conversations okay and just to be clear agreement of stock balances is not part of the agreement of balances exercise is it correct right just to make that very clear so um, I think we've covered off the key issues um, that we're thinking are going to be issues this year. Um, are you expecting to issue any more guidance other than the stuff you were talking about earlier about going concern? No, in a, in a word. So in terms of the huge challenges for this year, we were, I think about this over Christmas, actually, and came back after Christmas and said, that we were going to, because we know how frustrating people find guidance that comes out right at the year end. Often, of course, it's because of other policy making thing that, that, that affects that. And I set a target that we were going to get all the guidance out on the COVID stuff by the end of February. And I think we'd largely achieved that in the, you know, two thirds of it came out in the like third week-ish of February and then the final bit followed in the first week of March. So yeah, we worked really hard to try and do that. So no, there is no big lots of guidance that I'm putting in my head. Yes, there's the simplification on going concern, given that we're hopefully making people's lives easier. Uh, I'm not going to you know, chalk a, a black mark of uh, late guidance uh, on, on that one. Um I have a feeling that we might need to write something down on valuations as the dust settles a little bit and, you know, in terms of helping people navigate what they need to do. But there's nothing that I'm, 
that we're currently working on in that respect. If it helps people, we might help people on property valuations possibly, but no, there's no, other than the routine GAM updates, of course, that will come out shortly. No, not expecting to launch uh, new sets of guidance from a provider accounts perspective on people at the Excellent. year end. That's good, good to know. So a couple of questions looking forward. Um, is there any chance that IFRS 16 will be quietly forgotten um, in all of this? Um, but assuming not, um, when do you start? Um, when do you think that you're going to start asking NHS bodies to sort of dust down their IFRS 16 stuff and start doing more things, submitting returns? When are you going to start asking questions about it? Good question. So. What we've done over the last winter has been impossible, but layering IFRS 16 budgeting collections on top really was going to be impossible. So I had to not exactly plead, but, you know, laid that out to Fran pretty clearly, our concerns for the winter that we've just gone through. And I'm very grateful that Treasury and Fran were very receptive to that and took a difficult decision and it did lead to more work for Treasury with different implementation dates for different people. And uh, you know, huge thanks to Treasury for accepting our recommendation there because it literally would have been impossible. So that does mean that we need to pick that back up again, you know, two years beyond the work that people were already doing. And that, you know, that time has gone quickly, but it will have been two years from all the work that everyone was doing. So what does that mean? Well, in terms of the headlines, if, if leading to a 1 April 22 implementation, the big key first thing for us will be what the budgeting collection next January, where we ask people to tell us what the impact will be on transition and the impact into the 22, 23 years. That's really important, really, really important because it will affect the way the RDEL, CDEL things are worked out at the very top level. So they need to be accurate. So what do people need to do? That will come in January. We'll perhaps redo the agreement of leases exercise, which was helpful actually in perhaps December. So in the summer, we need to dust off all the old guidance, update it in quite a few bits and uh, get that out. Of course, our year end is going to go on forever again this year. So it's a slight challenge for us in terms of how we do that. But we are going to need to do that in the summer. So, yeah, expect more things from us in the, in the summer. The one thing, of course, just is the PFI modelling point. We've, we've talked about this at Pre-Accounts Planning. The issue of remodelling PFIs where the effect of the contingent rent becomes part of the lease liability Still, that's not just us. It affects SIPFA and local government and other central government bodies as well. Um, there's some work still going on on that. So unlikely to be any proper guidance on that until the summer. But that's just something for people to have on their on their radar for the autumn as well. And then a final question um, for keen followers of, followers of your Twitter account. You've got one sentence. What is a non-fungible token and how on earth did it come up in conversation in your team? <laughs> I can't, well, one sentence. So uh, non-fungible token is the idea that in the in the blockchain, you know, the technology that supports Bitcoin and so forth, that you have a unique digital record of something that makes something unique. So in the same way that, you know, the Mona Lisa is unique in the physical world, <laughs> that an NFT, a non-fungible token, represents something unique in the digital world and it therefore can be owned and traded. How do you call the conversation in one sentence? Uh, <laughs> we were talking about 
trading of uh, equipment assets, which I don't say that therefore inventory, you know, like a car salesman has car inventory, they don't have car equipment on the balance, on the balance sheet. And then someone said, well, what if it was a, a software license, for example, and I use that as an example of if you were a trader of NFTs, surely the, the concept of intangible inventory is possible. Um, that was the conversation. And at that point, even Eleanor told me that it was getting too geeky and it was probably time to stop. <laughs> Fair enough. So we look forward to a whole chapter on, of the GAM or, or the FTR on non-fungible assets at some point or non-fungible tokens. Before the auditors start, you know, if, if any auditors listen to this, they start you know, writing that advice from anybody. I'm not actually aware of any trust that's trading in NFTs. It was you know, to try and illustrate the point. <laughs> and it got out of hand. That's been really interesting. I found it fascinating. Um, it's it's always good to hear the thought process behind some of the guidance. I think it, it really helps people understand why the guidance is the way the guidance is. And it's not always just to uh, make life more complicated. It's usually always intended to make life more straightforward for people. Yeah, we do try. So, yeah, we're conscious that the amount of stuff that organisations get from the different teams in NHS EI plus regions and ICSs and so forth. So we do desperately try certainly provider accounts to make things succinct and digestible and in the place where you'd expect to find it. But as ever, people's feedback really is helpful. If there's things that we could do differently or things that don't work for you, um, then always keen to adapt and do what works for organisations. Thanks, Ian, ever so much. Um, Best of luck with the year end. And the year end for you will go on for much longer than anyone else, I suspect. Um, (laughs) I fear fear so, yes. Thank you, Debbie. Good to see you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Please have a look on our website where there's further material that might help you through the year end, such as the year end checklist for members and a year end reminder briefing for NEDS. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast to keep up to date with new episodes.